0: Brother Eddie has asked us to mark hymn number eight that we will use as a song of encouragement, a song of invitation a bit later in the service. And upon marking that, again, I would like to express the appreciation that I feel to Brother Harold for the no doubt excellent job he did on the lesson last Lord's Day morning. Appreciate his willingness and aptitude to do that. And I look forward to being able to hear that lesson myself so that I can be encouraged and edified as well. The gospel meeting, many of you have asked how that went, and it would seem from my perspective at least that things went well. I hope that the congregation there in Columbia feels the same, but it is certainly good to be able to be back to our home congregation today. As you know, when you get accustomed to your home church, it just doesn't quite feel the same and feel exactly right to be away, and we're happy to be able to be back with with our good brothers and sisters here this morning. As you can see on the wall, the title of the lesson today will encompass the reading that Brother Joy read for us earlier, taken from Matthew the 13th chapter, as we begin to consider some of the features of that interesting parable taught by our Savior. Maybe a few words of introduction might be in order, not only leading us to appreciate that specific parable, but also some of the other things relative to the Lord's usage of parables in His teaching. Perhaps to say that, I could say this. We might well know that the Lord often utilized this method of teaching in which he would tell a very familiar kind of story. You and I have come to call those parables. Really, a parable is nothing more than this, an earthly story that has a heavenly meaning. That is to say, the Lord would illustrate some fantastic eternal principles, but he would couch it in language that likened it to a very familiar scene not unlike the one that we're about to study this morning. Depending on how one counts the parables, there are anywhere from 35 to 70 parables utilized and taught by our Savior. I would probably much more weigh in on the lower end of that set of numbers than the higher. But as Jesus taught these parables, many of them are some of the most familiar and beautiful teachings in all the Word of God. It might well be powerfully noted that is, Jesus made use of those parables, on very few occasions did he actually give the interpretation of them. It is a majestic and fortunate circumstance that you and I can often utilize other passages and even the context of the parable to figure out what the ultimate meaning is. But it is truly a beautiful blessing indeed when the Lord directly gave the interpretation of that parable. We shall find even this morning that that is the case relative to this scene. Notice near the bottom of that screen. It's also fair to say that the parables have been a source of some contention, some controversy, and in fact, some instances where individuals have preached untruth based on them. We should remember a parable really is a story. And we can't push it too far and use it to teach things that contradict other portions of Scripture. Thus, when we turn our attention today to the parable of the terrors of the field, we will come face to face with some dramatic and wonderful teaching. And might we begin it by first focusing on what Joey read for us earlier. First, what is the earthly story? Once that is in mind, then we'll turn our attention to the heavenly meaning. What is the earthly story of the setting before us? Beginning in verse 24, we seem to have jumped into the middle of what we find in this chapter. For that reason, I've chosen to bring to your attention some of the things that occurred before it. All the way back in verse 1, Jesus on this occasion was teaching a group of people who had come to him and were interested in the great things that he had to share with them. Isn't it amazing in verses 1 and 2? Jesus went out of the house and proceeded to teach by this seaside, or he sat there, the text says. And this great multitude, in verse 2, was gathered to him, and notice, in order to accommodate their, their hearing, he went into a ship, and verse number 2, coupled with Luke's account, tells us he launched out a short distance from shore and proceeded to teach this multitude. Isn't it interesting? The Lord wanted each one of them to hear. He wanted all of them to be aware of the wonderful lessons that He had to share. To accommodate them, He launched a short distance into the Sea of Galilee. There, as they would have been in an amphitheater arrangement before Him on the hillside and the shore, He was able to teach them this set of parables. There are times that this 13th chapter of Matthew is called the parable chapter of the Bible. It contains seven parables in this chapter, by far more than any other single chapter in all of the Bible. The very first one the Lord taught this captive audience was the parable of the sower of the seed. We will remember the impressiveness of that parable. That's also one for which the Lord gave the interpretation. He exactly affirmed that the various types of soil represent the hearts of humanity, there are those who have a wayside heart, if you will. There are those who are stony ground. There are those that are thorny soil. And there are those that are good, fertile hearts. However, that one is not the emphasis of our lesson this morning. You might notice, though, in verses 22 and 23, Jesus closes that parable's interpretation. And immediately in verse 24, again, what Brother Joy read earlier, he starts this next parable no extended gap, no extended intermission. Verse 24 begins, Another parable put he forth unto them. That first parable, the parable of the sower of the seed, was not all the Lord wished them to know. It wasn't all that the Lord had in mind for them to understand. If we briefly revisit the thrust of it, we just noted that the heart of humanity is important. What kind of heart do you have toward the teaching of God's Word? Could it be described as the stony ground, thorny soil, the good ground, or the wayside soil? Each of us fall into one or the other of those categories. There's only the four types Jesus revealed. However, the condition of one's heart must be matched with the urgency of the judgment, the urgency of the moment. The condition of my heart and yours is eternally significant. For there is coming a day when you and I shall stand before the great God of heaven and give an answer to and for the nature of how we responded in terms of the condition of our heart to what he has revealed. With that kind of thought in mind, let's turn our attention to this next parable. In verses 24 through 30, the earthly story is set before us. As we noted in the reading, It starts, the kingdom of heaven is likened unto a man which sowed good seed in his field. Immediately, we are seeing the kingdom of heaven laid alongside a man sowing good seed in his field. Here's the earthly story. We know what it's like to sow good seed in a field. We've witnessed that. Maybe many of us here have done that. We know what it's like to engage in that endeavor. We also know what it's like to have the great hope and the promise to look forward to a bountiful harvest later in the growing season. Verse number 24, though, ends by saying, "...as that good seed was sown." Verse 25 says, "...but while men slept, his enemy came and sowed tares amongst the wheat." We now appreciate that despite the fact that good seed was sown... This man's enemy has come and done a dastardly deed of sowing this tare amongst the wheat. Now the tares, as we understand from a reading of this text, as well as some other portions of the scriptures, this was an incredible act of animosity between these men. In fact, a tare, it would seem based upon the nature of that part of the world, was the kind of plant you and I would call a bearded darnel. When it grows, it looks just like a wheat plant. In fact, it's almost impossible to tell the difference until the time of harvest comes. Now notice, as it grows, this bearded darnel, rather than producing something that is beneficial and useful, it really is a weed, and in fact, it bears a type of fruit, if you will, that's poisonous to both man and beast. You can't eat it. It's very hazardous to, to your health or mine. The thing is, its fruit is black in color. So it's not until the, it bears the fruit and the fruit t- turns color that you can tell the difference. Notice what this householder chose to do. In fact, in verse number 26, it says, "...when the blade was, str- was sprung up and brought forth fruit." Notice, when the fruit was brought forth, then they knew that there were some of these things that were tares. So it was, in verse 27, the servants of the householder. They came and said to him, Sir, didst thou not sow good seed in thy field? From whence then were these tares? The servants, if you will, brought to the attention of the householder, the master. There are tares amongst the wheat. They ask him, in verse 28 after he had identified the fact that an enemy had done it, he immediately drew the conclusion, it wasn't the fault of the seed, it wasn't the fault of any other particular force or activity. An enemy has done this. This householder knew the quality of the seed he had sown. He knew what naturally would come forth from the productivity of that seed. Upon concluding an enemy had done it, the servants then asked in verse 28, Wilt thou then that we go and gather them up? Should we now gather the tares and allow the wheat to grow on its own? Notice in verse 29, the answer is clear. The householder said, no. Lest while you gather them up, you root up also the wheat with them. Now that the season has occurred where the difference can be told... If you go and gather them up now before the harvest is actually fully arrived, you will do nothing but root up the wheat along with the tares. Their roots are now intertwined. Their roots are such that they have grown in many ways to where if you pull up the one, you will also uproot the other. With that said, verse 30 closes the earthly story. Let them both grow together until the harvest. And in the time of harvest, I will say to the reapers, Gather ye together first the tares, and bind them in bundles to burn them, but gather the wheat into my barn. Fascinating, isn't it, to consider? We can likely envision all that we've just read. We would hate to think that we might have an enemy that would come and purposefully sow poisonous tares amongst our wheat, But at least we can envision, as these things growing with a great similarity and likeness, only when the blackness of that fruit is seen can you tell the difference. But by that time, we can't easily uproot the tares. For if we do, we'll uproot our desired crop as well. With that earthly story in mind, what's the heavenly meaning? What lesson is Jesus striving to teach for both you and me in a spiritual way? might I ask us to now revisit that thought and see what things we can take with us that will be useful and beneficial to our knowledge of the Word of God. As we ask about that heavenly meaning, might I immediately point out a statement we'd made earlier. This is one of the few parables for which the Lord gave the interpretation. Jump down in the chapter with me. And notice, starting in verse 31, again, with no intermission, Jesus taught another parable. In that instance, it's the parable of the grain of mustard seed. And then following that one, in verse 33, immediately another parable, the parable of the leaven. But at this point, let's notice in verse 34, "...all these things spake Jesus unto the multitude in parables, and without a parable spake he not unto them." that it might be fulfilled which was spoken by the prophet, saying, I will open my mouth in parables, and I will utter things which have been kept secret from the foundation of the world. Then Jesus sent the multitude away and went into the house, and his disciples came unto him, saying, Declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field. After the Lord sent the multitude away, He entered back into the house, this house near the Sea of Galilee, and his apostles, his closest disciples, were so intrigued and so interested in that parable of the tares that they asked him, Lord, declare to us the parable of the tares of the field. They wanted Jesus to explain the parable. Thankfully, the Holy Spirit has chosen to include that in this same chapter. And so let me invite you to read with me verses 36 through 43, and let's listen to Jesus explain the parable of the tares of the field. After they had asked, declare unto us the parable of the tares of the field in verse 36, we now notice beginning in verse 37, He answered and said unto them, He that soweth the good seed is the Son of Man, the field is the world. and shall cast them into a furnace of fire. There shall be wailing and gnashing of teeth. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Who hath ears to hear, let him hear. We thus have the Lord explaining this parable and identifying element by element what the things represent. I've listed them in summary fashion for you. Jesus said in verse number 37 that the one who sowed the good seed is the Son of Man. And hence we learn that this individual who endeavored to plant that good seed, the one who initially had the idea to bring forth a good crop, was none other than the Son of Man. We have not very far though to learn who the Son of Man is. Jesus often referred to himself as the Son of Man in the Holy Scriptures, didn't he? In fact, in Matthew 16, beginning in verse 13, when he had entered the coast of Caesarea Philippi, and he said, Whom do men say that I, the Son of Man, am? Well, there it's abundantly clear, isn't it? I referred to himself, Son of Man thus, through the virtue of I, referred to Jesus. Quite often the Lord, when referring in his teaching to himself, rather than using his name, would say, Son of Man. Jesus is thus the one that sowed the good seed. He also, in verse number 38, said, "...the field is the world." We understand that in this present existence in the flesh, you and I live in this old place that's recognized as the world. It's the cosmos, the cosmos, if you will. This is special place that God fashioned and made is where you and I now exist in the flesh, But we recognize we won't live in this flesh here forever. There are those, interestingly, who teach a rather corrupted doctrine that they look forward to some kind of existence here in the flesh forever. But it shall not be so, my friend. Notice the Lord goes on to say in verse 38, The good seed of the children of the kingdom. Jesus sowed the good seed. Notice that good seed that he references in verse 38 are the children of the kingdom. The Lord made reference to his kingdom, the good kingdom of God, the kingdom over which he would rule and reign. This kingdom are those for which those in it are recognized as good seed. We still know from Luke 8 verse 11 that the seed of the kingdom is the word of God. Those thus who are fashioned and made spiritually following the pattern and plan of the Holy Scriptures are those who have adorned the doctrine of Christ, those who become Christians, those who are members of His body. Didn't He say, and aren't we told in Acts 2.47, the Lord added to the church daily those such as were being saved. When you and I are baptized, we appreciate the Lord added us on that occasion and at that moment to His body. As such, we've become the good seed of the kingdom, able to bring forth fruits unto God, Romans 7, verse 4. Able, in fact, to be those who bring forth much fruit to Him, John fifteen eight. As you and I are thus zealous of good works, Titus two fourteen, we are those who are able to bring forth good fruit unto the cause and kingdom of the glory of God. Jesus isn't finished, though. Verse 38 again. But the tares are the children of the wicked one. Isn't it an amazing scene that just as Jesus plants good seed, there is one who plants bad seed, plants tares. Plants these things that in fact do not bring forth anything productive and good from the eternal scheme of recognition Notice, poisonous fruits, what a bearded darnel brings forth, what a tear brings forth. As you and I ponder the character of this verse 38, the devil also has many that follow him. And in fact, those that follow him are such that the terribleness associated with them in their eternal state, if they remain in that way, are those that are greatly tragic and sad indeed. The tares are the children of the wicked one. We might pause to ask, how many masters then can one possibly serve? There's only two in the world and we can only serve one of them at a time. Isn't that what Jesus taught in Matthew six twenty four? He there said that you cling to one and you hold to the other, or cling to one, despise the other, hold to the one and avoid the other. That's the way that that mastery works, isn't it? We can't serve two masters at one time. Notice there's only two masters that men can possibly serve. May we ever be wise to choose to be the good seed of the kingdom rather than to being the terrible tares of the wicked one. Notice in verse number 39, we are now told who sowed these tares. The enemy that sowed them is the devil. In terms of now identifying who the potential masters are, in life it's either Jesus or the devil. There are no other options. In wisdom and in great earnestness then may we ever strive to be the children of the good one rather than being the children of the devil. For notice in verse 39, there's coming a time of harvest. The harvest is the end of the world. In the same way that there was a time when the distinction and separation between the wheat and the tares was made, so too there's coming a time when, notice, there's a time of harvest, the end of the world. There is no harvest until then. And notice the reapers are the angels, verse 39. To see the recognition of those points and the ideas that rest behind them leads us to ask about some lessons that you and I might extract from it and seek to apply to ourselves in a rather brief way. Let's look at four quick lessons taken from this that we can utilize, I'm convinced, to help us be so focused in our study and in our service to God. Our first lesson identifies and emphasizes that Jesus sowed the good seed from God. When you and I thus start to ask, what is the source of this good seed? Is it to be found perhaps in the sociology and psychology of modern culture? Is it to be found in, say, the various texts and articles that purport to give man the best way to live in this life? Is it to be found in secular education that can fill minds with those ideas recognized as useful from a secular standpoint? The answer to all of them is no. The Lord sowed the good seed. And remember, that's the Son of Man. The good seed is to be found solely and precisely and only in the good words to be found from heaven. In John 12 verse 49, Jesus, after saying the following statement, verse 48, we often know better than verse 49. In verse 48, Jesus said, "...He that rejecteth me and receiveth not my word hath one that judgeth him." The word that I have spoken, the same shall judge him in the last day. That part is easily appreciated to tell point us to a time of judgment. But in the here and now, verse 49 says, When Jesus there spoke, the things that I speak and reveal came directly from God. He is a prophet of the almighty God of heaven. He is thus the one that shares this good seed that's able to make of you and me those that would be the fruitful members of the kingdom and to bring forth good things for God. There is no other source of that good seed then than the statement of the Word of God producing what Jesus himself has set forth. Might we remember 1 Thessalonians 2 verse 13, as Paul wrote to those brethren in Thessalonica He so highly commended them for the manner in which they had received the word of God. And here's the statement that Paul made. He said, Now thanks be unto God, for when you received the word which ye heard of us, ye received it not as the word of men, but as it is in truth the word of God, which effectually also worketh in you that believe. The Thessalonians had received the word for what it was, the word of God. They didn't take it as merely Paul's word, or Timothy's word, or Titus's word, or or Silas's word, or any of the other companions that Paul enjoyed. It was in fact the word of God. May we in wisdom and in great might accept it the same way, for it will be what will make you and me the good seed of the kingdom. But in the second place, notice another lesson about the one who sowed the tares. When did he come? It wasn't in broad daylight. While men slept, the text said, the enemy came and sowed the tares. Doesn't that tell us a great deal about the operation of, of the devil? The way in which he approaches his work? We, of course, know that he opposes the work of God. He is a roaring lion seeking whom he may devour. But there's another aspect of him that should be appreciated. A mountain lion or a lion is a strong and mighty beast, and he often doesn't work very much under cover. He, he is strong and powerful enough to overwhelm his prey almost at will. The devil, though notice he sowed these terrors by night. He so often chooses deceitfully to work, that is to say, under cover or pretense of what may appear otherwise. Isn't it still true that the wheat and the bearded Darnell look just alike for so long in the growing season? Sometimes Satan, you see, is able to take that which is truly not at all good but give it an appearance that looks at least reasonably noble. It looks as though it's worthwhile to at least approach it a bit and only later when you see it for what it is, it's too late to do a lot about it. Isn't that awful? Sometimes he can work that way. This particular point in the lesson, let's never forget the deceitfulness of Him. He won't tell you the truth. He never has, and He never will. All the instances in Scripture when He chooses to make note of things, consider how He acted. In Matthew 4, when He tempted Jesus, the devil quoted Scripture out of the Old Testament. Did He properly interpret it? He did not. Remember, he quoted from Psalm 92, but it was Jesus who correctly affirmed in the aftermath and in opposition to him that he had misinterpreted that text. Point being, the devil will take Scripture but twist it, turn it, deceitfully employ it, and use it to teach what a correct interpretation will not reveal. He's deceitful. In Genesis chapter 3, when Eve was there, in that garden of Eden, and God had given commandment not to partake of the fruit of the tree of knowledge of good and evil. Was it not the devil who in fact took the word of God and changed it? Thou shalt not surely die, Genesis 3 verse 4. Wasn't it the devil who also on that occasion brought to her attention how good it looked for food, how pleasant it looked to the eye, and to top it all off he said, you upon taking of it will become as God's knowing good and evil. In that sense, we might appreciate that when she partook of it, and so did Adam, they realized they were naked. They realized that they had violated the law of God, and as such, they had sinned. They were punished for that very idea. But there is a sentence that opens that chapter. Now the serpent was more subtle than any beast of the field. Did the devil thus just come straightforwardly out and tell Eve to partake of that fruit? He did not. He won her over first with how beautiful it looked, how tasty it appeared, and then to impress upon her that it could do for her what otherwise could not be accomplished. He acted deceitfully. In Second Corinthians 11 verse 3, we are reminded of the simplicity in Christ as opposed to the deceitfulness of the devil. In 2 Corinthians 2 verse 11, we're reminded that, is it not still the case, we are not ignorant of his devices? For it's still the case, in verse 14 of 2 Corinthians 11, that even Satan himself is transformed into an angel of light. He can sometimes make his activities appear noble, worthwhile, and sound when they never are. Perhaps the last book in the Bible describes him best in Revelation 12, verses 9 through, through 10. He is the deceiver of the whole world. It is never the case that the devil will tell you straight up the truth. He'll take things and twist them. He'll lie to you. He'll cover up what obviously is going to one day be the case. May we be wise enough to notice that the devil is a deceitful, diabolical demon. In fact, that's the very meaning of the word Satan. He's the adversary, and the word devil of the Greek means the diabolical demon. May we ever appreciate that thrust of his being. In the third place, yet another brief lesson for us to appreciate. When did the separation occur? Notice that there was no separation of the good and the bad until the end of the world. There are those who, quite frankly, Desire that there be some separation here and now. Because I'm striving to be a Christian, God should pour out the blessings of heaven on me in every physical way imaginable. And to those, of course, who are not God's people, they ought to be left to carry forth the scrubs of anything left over. In essence, they would prefer God to make a distinction now. I might submit to you that if God did that, there'd be a lot of people serving him just because of the food on their table, just because of the physical blessings. Might we remember that Job's so-called friends accused the same of Job, didn't they? They told God, or in fact Satan told God on that occasion, that Job's only serving you because you bless him so much. God said, take the things away from him, see if he still serves me. And that's what happened. Job did not compromise his faith. When everything was as bleak and dark, he still was faithful, wasn't he? Now, he had questions in mind, but that never led him to sin against God. May we understand there is no separation of the wicked and the righteous in this life. That's reserved for another occasion, isn't it? I've listed some other passages that help us appreciate that. In Matthew 6, verse 34, very last verse of that chapter in the Sermon on the Mount, Jesus said, Take therefore no thought for the morrow, for the morrow shall take thought for the things of itself. Sufficient unto the day is the evil thereof. We understand this world in which we live is fraught with that which is evil, under the guidance and jurisdiction of the God of this world, Satan himself we also realize there's good present about us. Faithful brothers and sisters in Christ striving to the best of their ability to serve in the kingdom of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. We might understand that sickness comes to the servants of God just like it does to the wicked. House fires come to those that are Christians just like to those that are not. People who are Christians lose their jobs just like People who are not Christians lose theirs. There's no separation of the wicked and the righteous in the here and now. But that leads us, of course, to the last lesson in the sermon this morning. Notice there was a time of harvest. The householder said, let them grow together until the time of harvest. That leads us to say this. There is a separation in the final way at the day of judgment. For notice Jesus said, the end of the world, that time of separation, is the end of the world which, of course, is the judgment. Maybe a few comments and then the lesson this morning will be yours. Does not Jesus thus help us see that there is a time of separation? There is also, in the same way, an occasion of judgment. Let us revisit what happened to the two. He said, bind the tires into bundles and burn them. Bind the tares into bundles and burn them, the householder declared. Now remember, the householder that sowed the good seed was the Lord, the Son of God, Jesus himself. And he in this parable thus affirmed that there's coming a day when that same one will give commandment to burn the tares. In verses 41, 42, and 43, we noted the following reading, especially verse 41. "...the Son of Man shall send forth his angels, and they shall gather out of his kingdom all things that offend, and them which do iniquity." There is coming a frightful occasion for the tares, an occasion when they will be burned, not as though they'll cease to exist, for other passages of Scripture would contradict that, but they will be cast into a place where there's wailing and gnashing of teeth, a place other texts call hell." a place where the tares shall forever burn. Notice in the parable, there's never a time that the tares come out of that place of burning. There's never a time it ceases to be. It's an everlasting fire that burns these tares as they have opposed and been that way that was adversarial to the work of God. But on the other hand, isn't it a smiling thing to behold what happens to the others? We noticed, in fact, in verse number 30, whereas the tares were bundled and burned, what happened to the wheat? Verse 30 says it was gathered into the barn. This is the only place in all of Scripture that I know of that heaven is likened unto a barn. But it is a place with the security of the householder. It's a place far distant from the fire where the tares are burned. It's a place of protection, security, bliss, and joy. For notice in verse number 43, this is the description of Jesus. Then shall the righteous shine forth as the sun in the kingdom of their father. Isn't it interesting and somewhat ironic that while the tares are burning, the children of the kingdom will shine forth. There's a brightness to either one, but one's being consumed, if you will. One is shining forth in brilliance. Would you and I not far prefer to be in the kindly place of the barn, in heaven itself enjoying the bliss of shining forth with the Father? That certainly is far preferred and better than to be bundled and burned like the tares. The question, though, of which one you and I shall be does rest with us individually. And in the close of the lesson, may we ask these questions. Are you the good seed today or are you the tares? That's the same as asking, are you sown by the devil or are you sown by the Son of Man? There's only one answer to each one, and you and I can make that ourselves by comparing our way of life with the teaching of the Holy Scriptures. If you and I are the tares, we need to make a change immediately. In fact, just as soon as this song begins, come forward and let us make a change directly for you and with you by the power of the Lord. If you are, though, the children of the righteous already, keep on living with abundance and might and power with the Lord at your back, helping you and leading you along the pathway toward eternal glory. Today, which are you, my friend? Children of the devil, that is, a tare, or are you a wheat? looking forward to the brightness of shining forth with God forevermore. This hymn of encouragement has been selected, Psalm number eight. If we could be of assistance to you, that is to aid you perhaps in your confession and baptism, or to aid you in prayer on your rededication, we'd be happy, overjoyed to help you. But we need you to let, let let us know that if you would. While together we stand now and while we sing.